0: G'day and welcome to another segment of the Build Me A Brewery podcast. I'm your host, Chris Hayton. So you've built your brewery, customers are enjoying having your beers in your tap room, demand is starting to gather momentum, now what? Have you considered what you will do for takeaways other than growlers? Are there opportunities to get your beer into local bottle shops or pubs? Or is there some beverage distributors knocking on your door to send your beer far and wide? This is when you need to start thinking about a strategy with managing your beer packaging. This segment we talk about mobile canning and keg management. Part one, I talked to managing director Chris Kelly from East Coast Canning. Now, Chris has a background in science and after traveling around the US with his wife many years back, he quickly noticed there that majority of the beer was being served in cans. Knowing that this was something that wasn't quite happening over in Australia, that light bulb moment came on for Chris where he could build a business to fill a gap in the market over here and, and that's when the birth of the mobile canning service East Coast Canning got started. In my chat with Chris, he talks about the services they offer to breweries for canning their beers, when and why breweries consider using them and some interesting insights about beer packaging within the Australian and, and other international markets. I'll leave you to it then. I hope you enjoy part one of the beer packaging segment with Chris Kelly from East Coast Canning. Welcome Chris to the Build Me A Brewery podcast. Thanks for coming on
1: mate. Yeah thanks Chris. Thanks for having me.
0: East Coast Canning are very well known in the industry. You guys seem to come up all the time especially in the new startup phase where people can't afford their own canning line and you tend to fill that that void and I'm sure your clientele ranges a lot more than just the new startup side. But wanted to get you on, talk about the importance of the packaging side. We've talked a lot about the brewing, the brewery building, the you know, brew house equipment sourcing, but an important part is getting your beer from the tank into cans and out to the consumers. So love to get your thoughts on all that side of things. But just to kick things off, can you tell us a bit about yourself, you know, what you were doing before East Coast and the canning and packaging industry and, and a bit about you, your craft beer or if you had a bit, have any home brewing stories you'd like to share?
1: <laughs> yeah, there's a, bit, there's a bit in that. I mean, you know, my background is in, in science, basically. Um, I have a, a background in radiation science. And I, I guess uh, that often, you know, and I think we find often in the industry and home brewing and professional brewing that, Scientists and engineers are often drawn to what it is that we do. I think that's a pretty um, common theme regularly. And yeah, look, we kind of started this journey a bit over four years ago, you know, I guess based on a, an analysis of the market and, and obviously identifying a need uh, through comparing to the US market. My wife and I were traveling around the US and drinking a lot of beer in cans and pretty swiftly identified that that wasn't happening at home and began to ask some questions and, you know, one thing led to another. So it's kind of always been an interesting transition for me, you know, science and radiation science into, into craft beer, but it was um, a surprisingly simple adjustment. A lot of principles at a higher level were exactly what I was doing in my, in my day job for uh, New South Wales Health for, for over 10 years. And now we're kind of fulfilling the same high level tasks, but for ourselves in a different industry, it's kind of interesting and a, a bit unique. So yeah, it got started uh, about four years ago, as I said, and, and kind of grown and, and allowed the, the, the business, I suppose, to kind of push along with the market and push along with, with demand in, in the craft brewing sector primarily, It's just kind of been a, a pretty fun ride. Well other than sort of going around the states
0: and drinking craft beer and any sort of uh, times where you've got a
1: kit and kilo or Cooper's kit
0: and started the home brewing side did you ever dabble in that at all?
1: Oh, uh, made a home brewed. Yeah, made a home brewed religiously from the age of 18 or 19. We um, were kind of very into it even at that kind of young stage in life. It's sort of one of those things that begins as a it begins often as a as a financial uh, driver <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. through university or something is quite, is quite a common story, and it was certainly the case for for me and my few mates that we had a little brewing syndicate with. But it pretty pretty rapidly became something that you know the the, the few of us in that in that group that you know enjoyed you know maybe good food or were already in those days enjoying decent imported beers. We quickly realised that we all of a sudden had all of this control over what our beer. Looked and felt and tasted like, and kind of, you know, went on some pretty significant journeys in home brewing. So, I've done a fair bit of it over the time, and don't get a chance to do much anymore with no, two you two young kids and a and a busy business. But it's certainly been a, it certainly was a passion of mine for a long time, and something that you know we still do. We got a little um, we got a little home brew kit sitting around here at our headquarters in the shed, and it's the occasional occasional brew laid down on that, which is always fun ends up a bit of a weekend adventure with the team. So,
0: did you ever have, or did it ever cross your mind of, you know, the thought of maybe having your own brewery at all?
1: Yeah, of course. Um, It was something we looked at pretty closely in, you know, that sort of 2012, 2013 kind of time. At that time, building a brewery in Australia was an extremely different prospect to what it is now. In 2013, accessing relatively good and relatively Inexpensive equipment from Asia didn't exist. It was like, dare me or bust, basically. And for a poorly funded exercise, the the concept of a craft brewery in 2013 didn't look very pretty. It looked like a it looked like a lot of it looked like a lot of cash out the door for a long time, and not one that I could see myself kind of getting through. And that certainly was the driver. We we knew, and and I knew that. Um, this was an industry we wanted, we wanted to move into. And that part of it didn't feel right to me. And then, you know, uh, fast forward a couple of years after that trip around the US, that's when we kind of realised that, you know, p- perhaps this is the, the pathway. And it wasn't until, you know, months after we had returned from from kind of travelling around and, you know, certainly had some, Some light bulb moments, but it was months later. I literally woke up at two or three o'clock in the morning and went, "Hang on a second, I'm going to need to look at this and figure this out and see if this is viable."
0: Yeah, you know, leading up to our our chat um, today, I, I, I was thinking it was a. Seems a very um, smart move of, of seeing the, the gap in the market in Australia, you know, because there has been a, a strong shift from bottles to cans. And I'd love to get more of your thoughts about it later on. But, you know, it's it's a smart business move to sort of go into to service that, that gap in the industry where, you know, all these breweries are popping up. And we've talked about it on the podcast so far, the expenses involved for owning your own canning line and providing a service to to those sort of breweries that can't afford it or just can't put everything from their tanks into cans in in the time and, and, and efficiency that you can offer. But so it just made me think, you know, so innovative how you sort of came up with that idea for the, for the industry rather than building a brewery and getting into the industry that way. Well, there's all these different little alleyways that you can go down to sort of service the industry and then mobile canning is definitely one of them.
1: I think that's a really interesting point. And I think that there are lots of avenues, and there still are lots of really cool avenues. And as the industry matures, and you know as an industry, just on that, I suppose, as an industry, there's been, I guess, a lot of talk about uh, the, the maturation or the maturing of the industry as a whole um, for a couple of years now, and, and we're seeing it thick and fast. We're seeing change, which has certainly been driven by many other factors in 2020. But, you know, there's definitely the, I guess, requirements still for lots of services and lots of help within this industry, and there is so many, you know, there's plenty of avenues for opportunity.
0: Yeah. So tell us a bit more about East Coast Canning and and the sort of services you offer obviously you know people know you guys as a mobile canning service but do you want to sort of dive in a bit more detail of of all the services and offerings that you you have
1: yeah so we are um you know we are first and foremost a mobile canning service that is a, a mobile canning service that we carry out in a pretty traditional form in so much as the tradition of mobile canning which is you know a centralized ownership of equipment model where we bring the equipment in a vehicle to a site, we unload it, we clean it, we perform some quality checks at the beginning, we start product uh, and begin the packaging process, continually provide quality audits and checks throughout the process, provide some customer service, complete the run as dictated by the customer, clean the machine down and pack it up and then head to the next place. Uh, Or of course, stay on if we're doing multi-day jobs. So the mobile canning service is, uh, of course, where we began. There's so many challenges around packaging in dry goods supply. It's a, an enormous area, and an enormous area that that brewers in general need assistance with. Uh, so we pretty rapidly went into also doing a, a significant dry goods supply arm um, of our business as well. So we pre-label and supply cans out of a centralised facility. That removes a lot of risk out of the packaging process, not just the packaging day, but the process prior to pack day. And so we deliver kind of beautifully ready to rumble cans into facilities in preparation for filling. We do that for a lot of customers that don't fill with us as well and might actually own their own machinery.
0: And are those, so we are handle- those services, sorry, uh, in-house that yeah, you good. offer that that you, you know, the, the preparation because I know you do a labelling service and the actual physical purchasing of the cans, is, is that outsourced um, or is that all in-house?
1: No, that is fully in-house. So we manage the whole process so we can literally take an order and a piece of artwork and we fulfil the whole thing. We fulfil the whole thing actually right down to um, even having our own in-house logistics. So. We run our own trucks and vans um, with East Coast Canning staff, East Coast Canning drivers, um, to make sure that cans get there in the right condition at the right time with a short lead time. So we've built out a pretty significant system around dry goods and dry goods prep, dry goods ordering, essentially kind of building off some purchasing power that we get to basically get really kind of perfectly presented dry goods ahead ahead of filling day.
0: And primarily, I guess the geographical coverage that you guys cover m- might be revealed in the name. But uh, I don't know. Maybe you guys are expanding and getting busier. Is it predominantly just the east coast of Australia that you service, or are there other locations around Australia that you do?
1: No, I mean we we um, we do say that we service the whole nation, and the reason we say that is because I guess the the third arm to our business, besides mobile canning and drug and supply, is um, the servicing install and training of canning lines we don't sell canning lines but we do we we have partnered with cody to be their uh install service and training agent for australia so we do have customers in in wa for example that we uh help them provide assistance with their coding machines so we have that connection to the entire country but um, in terms of our mobile canning and dry goods services, we are basically a business that services the East Coast and that gets pretty literal in that we have customers in cairns, we have customers in Hobart and we fill the gap in between and we're just looking at some um, we're just looking at some plans to kind of begin doing some more work in South Australia uh, going forward. We're very careful with geography always have been and it's always been a very big I guess, philosophy of ours to be extremely careful about opening up a new market and then not being able to service it. So when we talk about the kind of more far flung locations, Tasmania is a good example where we service Tasmania for 18 months and we haven't been able to service it for about five or six months now uh, since borders closed. Obviously, that's out of our hands and out of our control. But there's certainly a concern for us. We don't want to ever leave a customer in the lurch. We have a a very strong kind of connection to ensuring that we do the right thing by them. So in terms Mm -hmm. of servicing geographical areas, we analyse it very deeply before we kind of go marching down a path, I suppose.
0: And is it predominantly just breweries that you serve, uh, the the liquor industry, or do you service like soft drinks and other beverages?
1: I don't have good stats on it, Chris, but I would say that 90% of our work is beer. Yep there's probably a couple of percent beyond that there's cider and the balance is in a category that we would call other that other category is growing pretty fast uh and it includes things like coffee energy drinks soft drinks and then you know and then there's the whole seltzer thing right um yeah. that yeah. we're would, we would kind of place in that in that box currently and i think that might be the one that maybe grows the the fastest for us for a period of time who knows what happens there but yeah, that's kind of our rough breakdown, you know, with a bit of guesswork involved. But we are absolutely primarily a beer canning business. Yeah. yeah.
0: And you mentioned earlier on when you, you, know, you and your wife did your trip around the States and noticed that, you know, everyone was drinking out of cans and, you know, it was, wasn't was happening over here in Australia. And I've had a number of brewery owners and, and head brewers come on. And I've normally mentioned we had a, a bit of a chat about, you know, the debate between, cans and bottles and everyone without a doubt is saying you know cans significantly outweigh the benefits of what bottles offer but do you care to share some comments on, on why
1: that is i'm strangely despite the position i sit in i'm strangely i guess unbiased about pack format i believe that a beverage producer should could and can do whatever is best for them Yep. Um, I think that bottles suit different styles of beers better, undoubtedly. Uh, that said, we're clearly committed to cans, and we all know that they provide a host of benefits from the aesthetic to the technical and the taste and aroma that we can kind of gain. The reasons, I mean, there's reasons that we know and there's reasons that have been you know, relatively well proven with science, light strike as a decent one and, you know, oxygen ingress and, and those sorts of things. But ultimately, in a way, I feel like that cans got so much momentum that the machinery that packages them at a craft scale also got momentum. And I think what that has done is that the machinery has actually become a lot more advanced, a lot more rapidly than what bottle-filling tech has. And I think that that is truly a big driver in the, the quality and the actual user experience part of all of this if you imagine machinery providers now the concept of sinking a whole bunch of r&d cash into improving a bottling line significantly for craft brewers seems like a really poor business decision to make but pouring a lot of money into you know significantly improving a canning line seems like a pretty reasonable um task to carry out i suppose and i believe that that's a driver
0: And I guess uh, for those that have been listening to the podcast so far, they realize how expensive it is to start a brewery. You know, I'm finding out very quickly, <laughs> but yeah. we were talking a little bit off air about new brewery startups, uh, obviously finances and capital is is going to be you know a concern in the beginning. So you'll normally find that new brewery startups tend not to have the cash available to afford their own canning line. And is that where predominantly most of your clientele sit in in that sort of early day startup or are you still seeing established breweries still using you guys?
1: So we see both there's absolutely no doubt Um, we have a lot of customers that are now four years deep with us and that is no longer a startup business. Now I think that it's worth understanding or being clear that the reason for choosing mobile canning over canning line ownership is driven by outcomes, right? So the outcomes that we can deliver are very predictable and very consistent. It's uh, certainly a known entity and the risk profile of using us is really quite low. There's actually an enormous amount of kind of economics, I suppose, around the purchase of a canning line and spending 150 grand on a canning line and putting out, Three thousand cartons in the first twelve months means that every carton costs you fifty bucks, and so it's super easy to um, lose sight of the economics. Even beyond that, when we start talking about the concept of a piece of machinery will cost you around about ten percent of its asset value to maintain each year. Running these things is challenging, and you need good people. You need to train them. You need to make sure you don't lose them, and that's a real challenge in a small and growing business. Having the business owner. Get deep into the nitty gritty of how to accurately measure op profile spacing from a seamer chuck, for example, and how to correctly form a double seam is stuff that we feel we can take out of their hands. I think that that business owner is better off figuring out how to get an extra 100 people through their tap room each week. I think that that business owner is better off figuring out how to push their sales volumes further, how to improve their margins. I think that there's an awful lot of ways that we can not just take away that startup capital issue, but also provide business outcomes. And I think that that is something that we've realized pretty quickly that that we are ultimately in, in the business of canning, but also in the business of delivering business outcomes. And I, and I think that that's the important thing. It's like that 150 grand for a canning line, what can you do with that money? What can you do with that money in terms of capacity for tanks to service your tap room where your margin's really high? Um, your margin impact is always going to be pretty low. Um, it's a tough, it's a tough space. And so, our our message is is always that you know, particularly for the tap room businesses, that you know the the concept of ownership's tough. It's really tough, particularly when you start then talking about space. And this is where the really kind of Nasty economics come into it, right? It's like, are you going to use up, I don't know, 20 square meters of real estate in the middle of Sydney or Melbourne to put your canning line into that? What else can you do with that space? How many liters of beer can you make in that space? How many sitting customers can you put into that space via tap room at tap room margins off draft product? And so there's so many factors in it. And, and I think that there's so many factors that it becomes bewildering. And, and a bit challenging to see, see your way through it. But if you, if you began really looking at the economics of it, we, we end up a really low risk uh, option and we also end up very low cost.
0: And just speaking about, I guess, costs, you, you, you did mention there roughly what a, you know, a mid range or a decent canning line would cost a, a brewery, but what are some of the, the ranging costs involved for a canning line?
1: Yeah, I mean, you can go, you can go in so many different ways, Chris. So, I use the figure 150 grand talking about a Cody canning line without any accessories, right? So, that's 150 grand that you probably still need to add a little bit of cash to. Not a whole bunch, but a bit. Um, You've got some freight on top of that. You've got an install and some training. You've got some wastage at install, which is something that is very, very rarely considered. So you kind of end up with a whole host of things and then you start talking about depalletizers. There's 50 grand. You start talking about PacTech applicators and all of a sudden you've got another 25. So in terms of having a system with any type of automation, you're looking at not really getting any change out of 200, certainly. And that gets you, uh, you know, that, that certainly gets you a very nice machine. Though. That's a counter-pressure machine with automation that's going to get you, a really high quality result consistently with relatively low labor cost. But to do that, you really need to be looking at a very high level of sales volume in terms of the number of thousands of cartons that you produce each year. It really needs to be in the vicinity of 20,000 cartons or something like that um, mm. to get a good ROI. And so that becomes challenging. And so, you know, that that's what I kind of consider the high end. There is, of course, higher end than that. You know, you, you then go into... Rotaries, and we start talking about one hundred pieces a minute, we start talking about one hundred and fifty pieces a minute and then we're talking about millions of dollars. And then of course, you can slide back down the scale into you know you might be able to land something for sixty grand or something like that. That's going to be very slow, very manual, very labour intensive. And I think that's the challenging thing to remember is that that slow, manual, labour intensive can be beautifully handled in the hands of the right person. You want to make sure you don't lose that person and a business owner needs to make sure that that person isn't them. It's important, again, I believe that we have people focusing on, on driving brands and driving beer and driving businesses as opposed to trying to get good results out of a low-speed canning line. That's, um, you know, I guess another kind of place where we find people kind of, you know, jump onto mobile canning as a, as a strong option, kind of seeing that issue. But, yeah, you can certainly get away with it for a reasonable price, but you then begin to have, you know, clearly that will be a gravity-fill machine most commonly. It might be a SEMA that's operated with pneumatics, and both of those things have their challenges, inconsistencies, and quality issues, and we see that all the time.
0: I think it might have been Neil Cameron that mentioned uh, some new canning lines coming on the market from America that seemed to be reasonably priced around that, I don't know if he was quoting in american dollars or australian dollars but uh, i think 75k was was a figure that he threw out there the, the impression i'm getting is that you know some of these candy lines cost just as much as what your brew house is going to cost so it just does make sense for a, for a new startup or or brew that just wants to focus on brewing more volumes of beer and, and increasing their sales and then just having someone like yourselves coming in and just making the process a lot easier obviously it's going to eat into their margin in the beginning using a mobile canning service but uh what you're saying it just makes it less stressful and they can focus on some of the other things to drive the business
1: yeah exactly and mm. and interestingly enough the, the margin is not always impacted very heavily in the beginning uh, depending on volume packaging such a volume game. It is for us, it is for our vendors, and therefore it is for our customers. You know, um, Scale is key, quantity is key, and, and getting those, those numbers right is really important, and, and that's where we come in, I suppose, in terms of experience and, and can help push those discussions. Uh, despite being a fo- smaller site, we can see some really quite large volumes pushed out in one run, which really does create a very good commercial situation and commercial scenario. So, you know, it's important. And, and, and look, and, and back to your point on, on some of the canning lines, I think we're going to see more and more reasonably priced canning lines. And, and I think we'll see some good stuff under a hundred grand. The one thing that I know that we're not going to see, though, is we're not going to see stainless steel under a hundred grand. And that's the challenge. So, what happens is, and this is something that nobody really thinks about very much because it's hard to see, but, most of the lines that you see coming out that are relatively low cost and particularly in that sub 100 grand range it's important to analyze the materials that the line is made out of and that's my point around stainless steel plastics aluminium mild steel none of those things interact at all with caustic or beer and so what we see is that those parts degrade and degenerate extremely fast and you end up spending what is still a very large amount of money on an asset that deteriorates, deteriorates very fast. But if you go to one of the more traditional kind of guys who are making, you know, mainly, primarily stainless steel-based machinery, you're going to have a better asset for a longer period of time. But mm. that costs money. So good old-fashioned Venn diagram, mate, good, fast, cheap. Yeah. Um, you can't have it all.
0: Yeah, aspiring brewery owners can be tempted to look for just a cheap option, you know, because capital in the beginning is just so key, and it's probably the most stressful thing of opening a brewery is making sure I've I got enough money. And if I built the thing, have I got enough money to survive the first twelve months, cash flow wise? You know, I had, um, people talk about you know the, how the average turnaround for getting payment for kegs and you know and and all that. So, to, yeah, so yeah. I can imagine why people would be tempted to go the cheaper option, but it's comments like what you've just made there that sort of put it all in perspective as to well if you go cheap that's what you end up with and probably cost you more in the long run because if you're saying that you know the deterioration happens quite quick with some of these different materials uh maybe you should have just gone the stainless steel route paid an extra 50k and uh you'd you'd have it a a lot longer
1: yeah like you said you'll certainly save money in the long run
0: and just on um you know, the types of machines out there, uh, are you able to rattle off some of the common or the more well-respected brands or or maybe um, important considerations when it comes to the system side and automation side that people should be looking for?
1: Yeah, look, important aspects to look for in canning lines is, is I suppose, a proven seamer. You need to be aware and understand and even accept the fact that If you go with an unproven seamer, you may end up having to recall a horrific amount of product. Mm. Even the good ones will put you in this circumstance. You need to be able to factor into your budget the concept of having to throw 500 cartons in the bin because they're all leaking. So a proven seamer is critical. It will lower your risk profile on things like that. In my opinion, pneumatically driven seamers will put you in places with more risk. So that's one thing to be aware of. Obviously, the next thing is the fill. counter pressure. again, in, in our experience and opinion, is key. In Australia, with our temperatures, I guess, small systems with small cooling systems, being able to have the carbonation you want as opposed to the carbonation your canning line wants. Uh, I think it's really important to understand that you are not driven by your canning line with a counter-pressure machine. You are driven by what what you want your product to come out like and be experienced by the customer. So, I mean, they're my my two key things. But again, back to the stainless steel thing, the other thing is materials. You know, getting the materials right can be really key and analysing that carefully is a, a big deal and important and very, very commonly missed. Mm. um you know in terms of the suppliers i mean all the guys that have been around a long time all make a good machine you you know there's there's cask there's wild goose you know of course we recommend the cody machines they're ever evolving ever changing and ever improving and they counter pressure with a proven seamer so you know it's it's hard to steer away from them despite the the added cost so, yeah, I guess that's kind of, yeah, my opinion without getting too deep into it. You know, there's certainly things to avoid and, and, and things to look out for, but I, I guess they're probably the, the, key, the key issues and key ones.
0: Yeah, excellent. And when a, a brewery is looking at approaching um, someone like yourselves, uh, Marabal Canning, what are, what are some important considerations they need to take into account um, in terms of the packaging aspect you know i've got some questions around printed cans versus labels on cans um you know there's been talk about that uh you know maybe minimum packaging amounts that you guys would sort of say well you know it's not worth our time to come out and do a, a batch that size uh, do you want to share some thoughts around that
1: yeah so first let's let's approach those in two different ways so there's kind of like the actual packaging of the product and the service and then there's the dry goods component The packaging of the product and the filling as the service component, we will show up for just about any volume. But I think most of the time, anything under 2,000 litres is challenging to become commercially viable. In addition, we see most people beginning and starting up being very cautious, understandably so, totally get it, and we support them through that. But we'll often find that a a 1,000-litre run once a month as an initial inquiry, almost always turns into a few thousand liters. I think people often do a little bit better than they're expecting, and that's great. You know, that's awesome. It's good that business owners are coming into it with some some modesty and a, and a prudent approach, and it's good that they're seeing success beyond what they're expecting, which is cool. So, I guess what I'm getting at ultimately is that not many people kind of remain or stay in that sub two thousand liter range that we that we see as not being super commercially viable. You know, so we we certainly have a really deep dive with our customers in the beginning, in the early stages when we're talking with them around volumes and that whole piece. And that's an important part of what we do with our customers. Um, you know, other things that they need to be aware of uh, around filling uh, is, you know, for us, again, I'll, I'll rehash the, the fact that we want the product to be presented as the producer wants it to be presented. So carbonated in your tank how you want it to be presented to your customers and that's what we want we want the you know our our customers to have the right result further than that it's just simple things like organization and and really kind of leaning on us um for some information um we're kind of you know been doing this a long time we've got um we're just ticking over to 25 million cans worth of experience and and often the people that soak in what my ops manager and our line operators tell them the people that soak that information in the best get the best results, um, undoubtedly. So, you know, that, that's some kind of key, I guess, um, pre you know, some key pathways to success on that filling side, but, you know, dry goods is a whole other kettle of fish. And and this is where things become really heavily volume driven. The minimum order for printed cans is in the vicinity of 50 or 60,000 units. I need to be clear that I think that that's going to increase soon in Australia. We're seeing a can shortage internationally and Australia's demand for aluminium cans has increased way beyond expectation and we will see capacity issues and we will see minimum order quantities increase. There's a real problem with demand outstripping supply internationally. It's a key problem in the US. Europe is struggling. Asia still has some capacity. But sea freighting cans is extremely costly. Um, Being so full of air, you're shipping no weight and lots of volume and it's a a tough proposition. And we're fine in Australia, but we'll get to a point soon where we're not so fine and can manufacturers will begin to push back and they'll begin to increase their minimum water quantities. I feel relatively sure of that.
0: Mm, Yeah, Um, because I've had other people in the show so far mentioned about the minimum order for printed cans and printed cans seem to be you know the bees knees when it comes to labels on cans they just instantly look aesthetically a lot better but it'd be pretty a tough ask for a small up-and-coming brewery to order a minimum of 50,000 or 60,000 cans straight up I guess
1: yeah I mean you're looking at 15 grand um, worth of aluminium per skew if you've got three beers in your core range, then you don't have much change out of 50 grand and where on earth are you going to put that many cans, right? So mm-hmm. there's there's a pretty key challenge pretty fast with printed cans. You know, it's not as simplistic as I just ran through. There's, you know, ways and means and there's terms and there's things you can do, but it's not a long way different to what I just described, right? Yeah. So, you know, it's it's a challenge and ultimately an impossibility. What we're also seeing at the moment is the people who are developing new SKUs and new beers at high margin in low volumes are succeeding and succeeding well. And you can't do that with printed cans. You don't have the product development turnaround. The lead times just uh, are too long for printed cans and you can get a much better lead time with a label can.
0: Oh, wow. Okay.
1: And that, again, as we begin to perhaps go deeper into can shortages, that's you know a, a strong chance of getting worse uh, in terms of lead time for printed cans. At the moment, I think it's probably something like eight to 10 weeks, and we can turn a label can around in three. It's undoubtedly a better aesthetic result. It does need to be pointed out, though, that digital printing of labels can have some really significant, I guess, design elements added. So we do have some people who actually prefer the ability to to go beyond screen printing, I suppose. You need to remember that a printed can in the factory um, with a can maker is screen printed, right? So it needs screens and registration and paint. And so you're limited to, uh, you know, it might be six colours or something like that, and you don't have those limitations with the labels. So we find some people who are really heavily design-orientated who, who actually kind of you know, perhaps preferring that pathway. And we're seeing a little bit at the moment, some printed cans transitioning into labelled cans, which is pretty new for us. It's the first time we've really seen that. But printed cans are also ultimately a lot cheaper. It's You're going to save some cash by doing the printed cans. The problem is it all needs to go out the door early. Whereas a labelled can, you can obviously have much better cash flow benefits. And uh, again, at just about any stage of any business, that's important. Mm.
0: So you probably recommend uh, label cans for you know a brewery in their first twelve months wishing to you know package up. I mean, a lot of breweries starting out are probably more focused on their tap room sales. So, but demand picks up and uh, you know there's an opportunity to get your, your beer into cans and, and takeaway stuff. Uh, you'd, you'd recommend the the labeling route to begin with, probably.
1: Yeah, mate, for sure. And look, I, I can't recommend strongly enough focusing on tap room sales and having a packaging program that is focused on high margin beers um you know I, i think it's such a good idea to have your locals spending lots of money on scooters of pale ale and lager and having your locals take away a four pack of double ipa i think as a business position i think that's a really good one and you know and that will always drive itself to labeled cans i suppose you know we're obviously talking a very specific model which is kind of brew pub with some wholesale aspirations right and there's so many different little kind of categories of business models of brewery i mean that's such a common one because it's actually a real winner you know it's it's successful but for that style and that model that's a great pathway to take um, yeah yeah we see that no, i've a had a lot of people successful.
0: endorse that sort of model brew pub in a small town or you know a not a, a saturated market and you know it's the higher margins and it's a great way to build brand with locals and yeah it's something that i'm seriously considering myself but if you if you don't mind i know we might have gone over some some of the costs and you don't expect you to go into full detail but what are some of the average costs that a brew would expect if they used you know a mobile canning Um, service like yourself um, maybe just break it down to like unit price if they were to do it themselves the someone like yourselves uh, what would be sort of the added cost either per can or or per per case I don't know how you want to break it down what are some average costs that they'd be expected to have on top for using mobile canning
1: yeah so what we the, the the spreadsheet and the maths behind that is so complex with the economics I described earlier around footprint ROI staffing repairs and maintenance training kind of redundancy of training staffing training loss retraining The 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 spreadsheet you know factoring in a recall a year the the spreadsheet is extremely complex and so in terms of the unit prices that we expect a brewery to pay going it alone I'm not really too sure if Mm. I'm going to be honest what I do know is that depending who you are, you probably, you might pay an extra four or five cents per unit to use East Coast canning through to you might win by a few cents. And we see that is roughly where the kind of, um, the the delta or the variation, I suppose, is between setting up yourself, uh, factoring in ROI, factoring in some land value, blah, 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 and in in actual fact, if you start getting really kind of nitty gritty on costs, that's when um, you start to actually see that maybe you break even, uh, and maybe it actually doesn't cost anything extra to use a mobile counter, you know, unless you do have the cash and it goes out the door, and that's okay with you to have all of that money out. But then if you begin to start talking about you know what could actually be done with that money, and there's opportunity cost around cash. Um, then if you start making those kind of questions or, or asking those questions that's when things become even murkier but yeah we, we really see we really see it as probably a, a you know swing of something like four or five cents to actually kind of being ahead a few cents per unit yeah.
0: right okay and can you give the uh, I guess the listeners a uh, maybe just related to your current situation um, at east coast but what are some of the uh, turnarounds for you know a brewery's just done a, a new batch and it's going to be ready to to package in two three weeks time what what, what would be a, a typical turnaround for east coast to come out and do a, a canning run once once it's booked in what, what are some of those average times look like
1: look our lead time is pretty minimal we're in our busiest time of year and i've got I've got six dates in Malham in New South Wales, so you know that we we do okay. What we have always had a bit of philosophy around is trying our best to behave as though we are an in-house pack line, yeah. and what that means is that we buy machinery pretty quick. If we are sensing we need more machinery, we buy it. If we sense we need to train more staff, we train them. And the reason behind that is is that we'll always have a little bit of spare capacity. We try best at all times to have a little bit of spare. And so what that means is that we can fulfill demand at short notice. I had a customer call me yesterday and he's like, look, we've run out of stock again. You know, great problem to have, but I need you back next week. Have you got anything? The answer was no, but we made it work. You know, it's it's an Arbor shift, it's a whatever. So, you know, we, we've, got, we've got five machines kicking around now and we've got 13 operations staff on the ground filling cans every day so we can we can get into places at pretty short notice what we really like to say to people if it's your first time it's a great idea to make sure you're booking us with six weeks notice Mm. it's a good amount of time to get ready we can get in for a site visit we can go through lots of stuff together you know there might be a you know a small bit of plumbing that needs to get done a particular fitting that's required you know we make sure we close off on all those bits and pieces so you know, the, the situation for a repeat customer is a little bit different to a brand new one. Uh, and brand new six weeks is nice, but, you know, we, we can certainly turn around in faster.
0: I guess moving on to sort of getting your in- industry insights, I know we've touched on a bit about the canning shortage in uh, in the States and, and potentially, you know, Australia to come soon. But any other industry insights you can give maybe some uh thoughts on on new canning equipment that's coming on the market or any significant improvements to the, the quality and automation side for filling efficiencies etc so i know you might have touched on it in parts of our, our our chat but any any further comments on that
1: look not not particularly there's some you know we're pursuing some stuff that that you know we're kind of pretty mad about continual improvement and Our, um, you know, the the thing that gets us out of bed every day is making sure that people are having really good, positive, and memorable experiences in Cairns. Um, that drives from customers back through, you know, sorry, from consumers back through our customers and back through into our staff. We want to be able to make sure that we're offering experiences in, you know, the workplace, uh, in product delivery, and in end consumer enjoyment. And so we're kind of, you know, mad for looking at what's next you know i've got um tech applicators that are due to hit sydney next week that will go through all canning lines to reduce labor and things like that you know we, we're kind of always looking for the next thing and i'll be honest other than kind of like some end of line automation things are feeling pretty stable in so much as kind of innovation within the packaging space there's always something coming out and again they always need to be critically reviewed for what they are, you know, whether it's materials or operation or actual kind of lifetime cost stuff. Right. So, you know, there's all of those kind of those angles, but uh, there's nothing specific in that kind of pack space that springs to mind on the machinery space that springs to mind. There's some really cool like accessory stuff though, you know, like pack deck applicators and some end of line automation and, you know, some really nice, you know, Cody's got a really great small footprint pasteurizer. It's just been released. You know, that's a, that's a piece of equipment that doesn't go to a brewpub model. That's a piece of equipment that goes to a, a very wholesale driven business model, but certainly, a, you know, a great one to have the craft space. And, you know, I think there's some really kind of important things happening in terms of can decoration and, and, I, and I think that that's the space that's going to get really interesting over the next little while. But I think, you know, I think one of the biggest insights that is kind of becoming obvious at the moment, and I touched on it only a few minutes ago, I think, is, is you know, driving growth through SKU numbers or kind of beer variants or different types of beer. We're seeing that the people, you know, the data that we have internally here is showing us that the people who are doing really well are doing lots of SKUs. That is not very cost effective for brewers. We completely understand, but primarily the people who are doing lots of SKUs aren't doing lots of low value, low margin skews. They're doing high value, high margin skews. And that seems to be a real winner for certain businesses. And that's been really cool to see. I think that's kind of one of our key kind of you know pickups at the moment. And it's something we're beginning to pass on to customers in, in terms of knowledge.
0: And I always ask each guest, you know, how they've coped with COVID and how it's impacted their business or, you know, or the, the brewing industry, how how has it affected you guys?
1: Look, COVID made us busier through a period that's traditionally yeah, slow. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, we, were, we were ready to take our winter break, basically. We, we are much slower. May April and May are usually busy. We have that Easter stuff going on. We find that May is busy for a host of different reasons. There's usually some festivals happening. and You know, we see like a, almost one last kick before people begin to hibernate. And then June, July and August are traditionally slow and September all of a sudden pops. Obviously, this year that didn't happen to us. We actually grew through winter and are beginning and, to, and continuing to grow through spring and summer. So we're kind of, you know, four months ahead on growth, I suppose, um, which has been challenging for us at times. Uh, it's exposed a few flaws in our business and in our, in our operations and delivery and you know what that's fantastic so damn good it's a it's a good spot to be in and and it's about identifying the um, the, the wrinkles and ironing them out and, and so I think if anything that's probably the biggest effect that it's had on us it hasn't been like don't get me wrong, it's not been like, you know, kind of crazy earth-shattering growth. We haven't, like, kind of grown hugely while other people have been suffering, but we just kind of stood steady through a period that's usually tough, and that was really, you know, kind of really nice, obviously, as a business owner. But, you know, I guess that's probably the key for us in terms of impact, and it's kind of, you know, shown us some of those insights uh, around, you know, number of SKUs and and that sort of thing. But it's it's been challenging in a lot of ways around uh mobility of people we would normally you know we we normally have such a high rotation of staff between new south wales and victoria and obviously we've been blocked out of that for some time it's been it actually made it really difficult to operate in new south wales at times we've had a really hard time kind of getting everything you know putting all the pieces together and it's massive credit to our operations team to to have kind of overcome what they have in the last probably two months uh, specifically with the melbourne stuff that's been going down so, you know, that's certainly been a pretty huge headache to the point where we, we brought a fifth canning line in in sort of late June. And the um, concept was that it might have actually ended up replacing our oldest machine, but we had to run it. We, we basically had to run it because we couldn't get machine out of melbourne so normally what we would do is you know maybe run a melbourne team uh, one week in every four into sydney to kind of cope with demand and we've done the inverse in at various times in the last four years to account for you know maybe increased demand in melbourne and decrease in sydney and so we kind of have this little bit of an ebb and flow but there was just so much risk around doing that with border closures that we were kind of like okay well that candy line's running we need to get staff we need to train them we need to get a new van, we need new tools, we need team inspection. You know, it's it was like a it's an awful lot of money out the door based on a border closure. But you know, I, I think at the same time it'll strengthen us and kind of you know it puts us in the in the position where we, you know, say with confidence like I did earlier that, you know, we've got gaps in in November for people to fill product, which is a good position to be in. But
0: yeah, it would be, would be, um, yeah. And the a yeah. lot of the talk I'm hearing on the podcast so far is the the massive pivot from kegs to cans uh, obviously when um march april hit people were doing a 180 with uh the ratio of kegs to cans uh, some were saying they were doing 70 percent kegs and 30 percent packaging and that all flipped on its head within weeks of you know some breweries pouring everything into cans and i imagine you guys would have been extremely busy in that period of time
1: yeah and we as soon as we as soon as i got over the as soon as we kind of made the realization i suppose and the anxiety had had lowered or reduced around the concept of whether we'd even be able to operate. You know, there was those two weeks where everything was extremely upside down and nobody knew what the future held. Um, and we really didn't know if, you know, craft beer would be a critical thing that could continue. Once we realized it was, it was a matter of going straight to our staff. We have such a good team. There's 25 people on the team now. And we were straight to all of them. And we we're like, guys, we're gonna need to really hustle here to help customers and you know and, and to their credit every one of them put their hand up and said well put, you know push me in the deep end boss you know let's let's party so we did an astronomical amount of work in april and may was quite similar you know there was, there was a lot going on uh, in april and may and a lot, of, a lot of big hours pulled.
0: Yeah, I can imagine it. It sounds like it's definitely made you guys stronger. Um, bastard of the thing it, of what COVID is, but it's also, I've mentioned a couple of times already, it's been a bit of a, a blessing in disguise for some people in the industry. Yeah, for sure. Mm. Yeah, well, uh, thanks again. I, I do appreciate your time, Chris, coming on and sharing a good hour with us. Uh, any closing thoughts and advice you'd like to part with at all?
1: Uh, I don't think so. Um, other than I think that, you know, specific to a lot of the stuff that we've discussed today around canning line ownership and beginning breweries, which is obviously your, um, you know, your kind of your niche and your bag, I'd say that the, the biggest thing is to suppose range widely with your discussions with people and try and talk to lots of people with different different views and also analyse deeply. As hard as that is to do a lot of guesswork, analyse deeply on so many fronts and 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 look at the biggest winners within a business model and really kind of double down on those. Uh, I think that that's, you know, one of the, the keys to success in this industry and where we're at now as an industry in, in 2020, I think that that's kind of the key.
0: And before we sign off, any uh, things you'd like to mention about East Coast Canning, you know, where people can reach you and sort of get access to your services?
1: Yeah, sure. Look, I mean, we've been, you know, we're best reached via email through our website. We're just going through a big website rebuild. So keep an eye out for our fancy new website in January, which is going to be cool. But for now, yeah, look, contacting us through the website and we can answer anybody's questions at any time.
0: Yeah. Excellent. Well, thanks again, Chris, for coming on the Bill Me Brewery podcast. Thanks, Chris. See you, mate. Thanks for listening to the Build Me A Brewery podcast. That was part one of the beer packaging segment. In part two of the segment, I meet up with Nick Becker from Convoy Kegs to talk about keg fleet management in regards to rental and leasing options for the brewing industry. As always, if you are liking the podcast so far and find the content useful, please give us a follow and rating on whatever platform you're listening on. Also, follow us on all our social media handles as well as visiting our website www.buildmeabrewery.com.au and much more complimentary content will be coming your way if you sign up to our mailing list i'm chris hayton your host and this is the build me a brewery podcast